Today is an applicational sermon. This is, um, if you want the Bible exegesis or the exposition of a text, you can go back to the last two sermons, the formal sermons that I preached. So in June, I preached on Seek God First, and that was from Matthew 6. And then a year ago, I preached A Life That Glorifies God from Ephesians 4 and 5. So if you want to go do some work with the, the text... Um, You can go there. Today is almost entirely application. This is as if I were sitting with you in your living room or in my living room or my office or wherever we might be and just talking to you, exhorting you, pleading with you, whatever comes out here. It's the first time I've not had a scripted sermon in 14 years. So I want you to, if you're not asking this question or thinking about this, I am exhorting you this morning to think, how can I decide what God wants me to do? And so the sermon is how to decide what God wants you to do. And so this is to Christians, those who have been made alive and who desire to know God and do what he wants you to do. And here's the answer. This is the message. And then we're going to spend the next however long it takes me to explain bound this and to unpack it. Plan, decide what God wants you to do by planning how you can best glorify God by obeying the Great Commission with the local church based on who God has made you to be. And I want you to consider this. Consider your end. What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so what are some of the questions that you have in life? What should I do? Where should I live? Who should I marry? And the answer is, well, I need to glorify God by obeying the Great Commission with the local church based on who God has made me to be. So what should I do? Well, I should do the best thing that would help me glorify God by obeying the Great Commission with the local church based on who God has made me to be. Well, where should I live? You should live in the best place that would help you. And who should you marry? The best person. And it looks like I didn't get the text changed and I didn't give it to you yet, did I? So I'm doing two things. I have to remember that I have to do this. This one goes forward up there. This one helps me here. And I noticed in doing two different presentations that I have thing three times. So forgive me. But you didn't even know that. All right. So your chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And you ask these questions. And this is the answer, I believe, from the Bible. And that is to glorify God by fulfilling the Great Commission with the local church based on who God has made you to be. So here's here's a picture of that. Pastor Tim put together this picture illustration. So you have a question or you ought to be asking the question, what does God want me to do? And the answer would be to glorify God. But there's a lot of things you can do to glorify God. You can draw pictures. You can hit a baseball. You could make teeth. You could do all sorts of things for the glory of God. I believe that when you're looking for direction and trying to decide specifically what God wants you to do, you have to include something else that begins to narrow the focus and move you toward God's intended object. And that includes the Great Commission. And it includes the local church. And then 
me as God's workmanship? Who is God making me? What is God making me to do? What does he want from me? And so here's again the answer. God wants you to glorify himself. Or actually, this is from God's perspective. God wants to glorify himself through you by showing and telling the world the good news of Jesus and teaching them what he commanded you through the local church, which is made up of people like you, created in Christ Jesus to good works that will glorify God, your Father in heaven. This is how you decide what you should do. Prayerfully plan with wise counsel how you can best glorify God by obeying the Great Commission with the local church based on who God has made you to be. And so I am going to say that over and over, and I'm hoping that either you'll remember it or you'll at least remember to go look it up. So let's break this down into parts. How to decide what God wants you to do. Number one, glorify God. That is your mission. And here's again that picture and where it fits. The Bible says in John 17 that Jesus lived this way. This is what Jesus and how Jesus decided what to do. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. He said, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And he said that before the cross. His, his life was about glorifying God as well as what, was, what he did on the cross. And so I want you to picture, um, try to picture... Who, who you are? Who are you? There's different ways that you could answer that based on what we heard this morning. There's all kinds of things you could say about who you are. But in a broad sense, I want you to picture yourself as a follower of Jesus. You are a follower of Jesus. And so as a follower of him, what has he given you to do? He says, go and make other followers of Jesus by going into all the world and preaching the gospel, baptizing and teaching what he commanded. Now, how is Jesus getting that done? He's doing that by giving pastors and teachers to equip the saints, the church, to do the work of the Great Commission and edify the body of Christ into Christ-like maturity. That's what God is doing. I'm going to show you some pictures today. Um, so there's a lot of pictures. Uh, many of the, Some of them come from this book. You can still get it. It's a a pen and ink drawing. They're drawings of Jesus' life. And I know we don't know what Jesus looks like. I don't believe this is idolatry. And I'm not going to try to defend it this morning. But I hope it will be a blessing to you as you try. I think it helps. So you're trying to make a decision. What should I do in life? For me, because I'm a picture person, I'm thinking, okay, who am I? I am Jesus' follower. And Jesus was a real man, the God-man, who lived in a specific place at a specific time. And he met some men on purpose by the Sea of Galilee who were fishermen. And he said, come follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And I'm going to have you stop fishing for fish. And I'm going to have you start fishing for men. This is me taking a picture and zooming in. There's a video and zooming in on a fish jumping out of the Sea of Galilee on our recent trip. And then Jesus goes to Matthew, a tax collector, and he says, you need to leave these tax collecting things and come follow me. And I'm not going to try to go into all the story and the, the drama behind this, but it is remarkable that Jesus, the God-man, came to fishermen and a tax collector and said, follow me. And we're not going to go all through all of them. We're going to go 
to other instances. This is a time when Jesus was with Peter and his apostles, and they were at Caesarea Philippi in front of that big rock. And at the time, there were temples to different gods, foreign gods, not real gods, but temples. And Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, well, some are saying this and some are saying that. And or the disciples gave him these answers. And then Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And he says, Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Rock by Jonah, the son of Jonah, because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. But my father who is in heaven showed that to you. He taught you that. And then Jesus said, and you know what's coming next? I'm going to be beaten and crucified and raised again. And Peter says, whoa, whoa, hang on. And so then Jesus says, wait, you're, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. And so Peter, as a follower of Jesus, is having to reckon with the fact that Jesus has come to rule, to come to save, but he's come to die, to do it by death. The only way that Peter can become a genuine follower of Jesus and saved from his sins is through Jesus crucifixion. And so there was the beating by the Romans. There's the death on the cross on the side of a road outside the city gates in shame and in pain. And it wasn't for his own sins or his own guilt that he suffered. It was for yours, for mine. It was for those all human beings who will put their trust in Jesus because we're all sinners and come short of the glory of God. He suffered separation from his father and darkness in the middle of the night because sin separates us from God. We are followers of this one who died for us. Jesus then told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, you're trying to decide what to do in life as a Christian. If you'll come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, you'll find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And we're thankful that Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. Three days later, he came out of the tomb. He met Mary and the other disciples. And Jesus teaches us in Romans chapter 6, written through the hand of the apostle Paul. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, doesn't die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So now we, as his followers, must consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is foundational to you deciding what you're going to do. And so... In your mind, I hope you can see a little bit clearer a picture of you as a follower of this God-man, Jesus, Savior, King, Lord. Through death, he brings life. And so as a follower of Jesus, that's who we are. And what am I supposed to do? What did Jesus say to do? He said, make followers of me by going into all the world and preaching the gospel, baptizing and teaching what he commanded. So that's number one. We glorify God by being followers of Jesus who now obey the Great Commission. That was that second point and pictured in our diagram. 
as the next foundational broad step, but it narrows our focus in from doing anything for the glory of God, which we do everything for the glory of God, Paul tells us. But specifically, as you decide, what should I do? I need to be glorifying God as a follower of Jesus by doing what he said, and that is the Great Commission. Now, this is a picture of the mountain. Oops, I didn't do it again. This is the picture of the mountain that Jesus likely was on where he gave the Great Commission. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's what he said to do. And so God wants to glorify himself through you by showing and telling the world the good news of Jesus and teaching them what Jesus commanded through the local church made up of people like you created in Christ Jesus to the good works that will glorify your father in heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He did this with Saul. He saved Paul on the road to Damascus. This is a picture of the road to Damascus, off in the distance. It's a real place, and Paul was a real man whom God saved miraculously, just like he saves everyone miraculously. And Paul was imprisoned for the sake of the gospel and preached to Herod and Festus and preached throughout the known world. But Paul didn't do it alone. This, is, this calling is not just for Peter and John and the apostle Paul who wrote 13 books of the Bible. This is for other people too. Think of this family or this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. They were tent makers, ones that Paul served with, people who he lived with, who learned the gospel from Paul and then preached it to men like Apollos and taught him the way of God more perfectly. And then how about Timothy's mother and grandmother? The Bible tells us that from a child he was taught the scriptures And Paul says, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelled in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I'm sure that it's in you as well. But as as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know from those whom you've learned it. And from infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. So God used Timothy's mother and grandmother to teach him the Bible. And so Are you a grandmother? Are you a mother? You are involved in this work as well. How about Susanna Wesley? I'm going to introduce you to some of my friends here, people that I have known and walked with over the, over the, not centuries there, centuries. I'm, I'm going to be 50, half a century, but not, uh, not more than that yet. This is Susanna Wesley. So a mom, she was the mother of John Wesley, the evangelist and Charles Wesley, the evangelist and hymn writer. Susanna was the youngest in a family of 25 children. From both her parents, she inherited strength and decisiveness of character. Susanna had a very large family, 19 in all. But listen to this. Nine of them died in childhood. It was hard for she and her husband Samuel to make ends meet their entire married life. Their stressful circumstances put a huge strain on their marriage. And despite the terribly different circumstances, though, she maintained a well-ordered household where her children learned good habits of self-discipline and perseverance. 
And this was helpful, as you can imagine, to both John and Charles Wesley. They were itinerant ministers or preachers throughout England and Wales and even in America. They had learned from both their parents the fortitude necessary to enable all kinds of hardships or endure all kinds of hardships, all kinds of opposition and abuse for the sake of God's glory and their great commission. And here are a few quotes from Susanna Wesley. I am content to fill a little space if God be glorified. She had that motivation of glorifying God through fulfilling the Great Commission. Here are some other things. She, she was, um, as you can imagine, being from a large family and having a number of children herself, she had some pointers on parenting. And I'm not endorsing these as perfect, but I'm going to give you an idea of this woman's thinking. Number one, subdue self-will in a child and thus work together with God to save his soul. Number two, teach him to pray as soon as he can speak. Number three, give him nothing he cries for and only what is good for him if he asks for it politely. Number four, to prevent lying, punish no fault which is freely confessed, but never allow a rebellious sinful act to go unnoticed. Number five, commend and reward good behavior. Strict observant, strictly, number six, strictly observe all promises you have made to your child. So there's just some pointers from Susanna Wesley. But my, my uh, appeal, I was going to say my point, but anyway, I just said it. God is working in all types of people. Every category of person God is after to fulfill the Great Commission. Here are two other people. Um, this is the story and life of um, Countess of Huntington. Um, I'm going to do what I've been told is not wise to do from the pulpit. So this is a little story time with Uncle Eric. So hang in there. This is a neat book we were given called Gospel Patrons by a man who is well-to-do and loves the Lord. And he said, you really ought to read this. The knock on the door roused the doorman of a London mansion. Guests were not expected, but visitors were not unusual either. The poor came by day to visit Lady Huntington's kitchen, and the rich circled around at night to enjoy her parties. But this knock brought her favorite kind of visitor. Excuse me, sir, said a tired voice. Is this the home of Lady Huntington? Yes, said the doorman. Might I have a word with her, sir? Does she know you? No, but I've walked miles to beg her assistance. You see, my village has no gospel preacher, and I had hoped that her ladyship might send one of her Methodist ministers over and help us. This poor man had come to the home of a woman who was a tornado and a silver spoon wrapped into one. How do you like that? Five foot six, force of nature and the heiress of old money. Blunt, opinionated, and constantly in motion, Lady Huntington was a rare English aristocrat. She rubbed shoulders with royalty, enjoyed a pinch of snuff, and really believed the Bible. Lady Huntington greeted her guest warmly and heard this request. Eventually, the man said, Is it true, madam, that George Whitfield is one of your chaplains? Yes, she answered simply. Well then, thank you, thank you, thank you, madam, for all that you've done for England. And let me describe or read some of what she did in England. She's having a conversation with with Whitfield at one point, and she says, So much has happened since we last met. Two of my sons died of smallpox. That wasn't the right tone of voice, was it? So much has happened since we last met, she said with a sigh. Two of my sons died of smallpox. Oh, madam, Whitfield said. And my dearest husband was taken by a stroke. 
I am terribly sorry. As am I, Mr. Whitfield said the countess, but amidst my losses, my Savior has heard and answered my prayers. I recently accompanied Hal Harris and three other evangelists on a preaching tour of Wales. Four or five times a day, people from little hamlets and villages came to hear the word of God, and God displayed his power in a way I've never seen. During the preaching, I walked amidst the crowd and saw how God's word convicted them. With my own eyes, I observed their tears, and with my own ears, I heard their cries for God's mercy. Mr. Whitfield, I watched God save souls through the light of his all-glorious gospel. And now I see the one thing that's worth living for must be the proclamation of the love of God to man in Christ Jesus. I am nothing. Christ is all. To behold the glory of such a Savior ought to make us breathe his praises from pole to pole. To preach Christ and his blessing upon repentance all over the earth is the commission. Whitfield sat still. So, she said, my mind is made up. I'd like to propose a partnership. Go on, he said. God chose me to be a member of England's nobility. And now I'm ready to use my position for Jesus' sake. And I want your help. I'm listening, Whitfield said, a warm smile spreading across his face like a sun, sunrise. Well, Galatians 2.2 says that Paul preached privately to those who seemed influential in Jerusalem. And I have a burden for the influential in England. They won't go out to the fields to hear Methodist preachers, and when they attend church, they hear sermons with no theological guts. Whitfield, I want you to bring the gospel to them in my home starting tomorrow night. Sorry. I just love the passion and the commitment of a woman who's taking what she has in the midst of great loss for the great commission of Jesus. Whitfield was thrilled to answer Lady Huntington's call and later wrote to her, If they will hear the gospel only under a sealed roof, ministers shall be sent them there. If only in a church or a field, they shall have it there. Oh, that I may be enabled when called to preach to any of them, so to preach as to win their souls to the blessed Jesus. But there's more, so hang in there. This is later on. People in Boston and Philadelphia and Maryland heard the preaching of the gospel from Whitfield, and he said, The sigh of so many perishing souls every day affects me much and makes me long to go, if possible, from pole to pole to proclaim redeeming love. Lady Huntington's patronage made it possible for Whitfield to fulfill that dream. She asked Whitfield to become one of her personal chaplains, a special privilege reserved for the nobility. Lady Huntington's support gave Whitfield the means and the encouragement to continue preaching everywhere, promoting the revival among all churches, all denominations, and all people. And I'm going to skip ahead. Before Lady Huntington would pass away, five of her seven children would die. She was a woman who experienced great losses, but through her faith remained strong. And at the age of 50, one of her biggest victories was still to come. After 30 years, she returned to Bath, the city that had appalled her when she was younger. This time, she bought a plot of land, hired builders, and began construction. Lady Huntington's project caught the city's attention. Why build a chapel, they questioned. Your money could be better spent helping the poor. I do pity the poor, she answered, and I will give them what I can. But when I gave myself up to the Lord, I likewise devoted all my fortune to him with this condition that I would take with a sparing hand what might be necessary for my food, clothing, and support of my children. 
Many benevolent persons who, who have no religion feel the physical needs of others to help them. But few, even among professing Christians, have a proper concern for the awful condition of perishing souls. And so the need for more chapels was everywhere. Whitfield woke, um, uh, worked to raise up more evangelical preachers while Lady Huntington labored to provide them places to worship. We're almost done on this. So Whitfield's final sermon he preached, and God enabled him to, to finish it. And when he had preached at least 18,000 sermons, averaging more than 10 a week, more than 500 a year for 34 consecutive years. At 55 years old, Whitfield knew his body had worn out. Lady Huntington carried on in her oversight of preachers and property, saying, to serve all gospel ministers is our highest honor and happiness. Funding her seminary students' clothes, food, and ministry trips took half of the annual income she had, but these young men planted new churches, preached in her chapels, and took the good news of Jesus to the remote and unreached areas of England. What Lady Huntington and George Whitfield accomplished was truly incalculable. They reached to the unreached places of both England and America, where there were no faithful churches and no gospel preachers. Together they persuaded many of England's nobility that God was not a dull idea, but a living Savior who could be known and felt. In the years before the American colonies became became an independent nation, four-fifths of Americans heard Whitfield preach Jesus. Whitfield's broad-reaching evangelism gave America a united theological backbone that shaped the nation for, a, for generations to come. In total, Whitfield evangelized upward of 10 million people, and no one could begin to count the number of conversions that he saw. That's a life lived for the glory of God to fulfill the Great Commission, wouldn't you say? And I know she's unique in terms of her situation, But the question today will become, what about your situation? What about you? All right, I'm not done. There's some more friends. They won't all be that long. This, This man is Charles Thomas Studd, 1860 to 1931. He joined the China Inland Mission as part of a remarkable band of recruits called the Cambridge Seven. These ex Cambridge men would later be dubbed the spiritual millionaires. These were men well-to-do who used their fortunes to glorify God by fulfilling the Great Commission. He trusted immovably in God's provision such that in 1885, after his father's death, he gave away his entire $29,000 or £29,000 inheritance, which was a fortune at the time. C.T. Studd served the Lord in China, then India, and finally Africa. In 1913, he formed the World Evangelization Crusade. I have good friends who were missionaries with WEC. It operates to this day. Here, listen to some of his quotes. Some wish to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I'm sorry, I probably haven't slept enough. (laughs) Um, I was just with my dad too. And his, his health isn't doing well. But everywhere he went... At the dump, I went to the dump three times and I think he gave out 10 tracks. I'm pulling stuff out of the trailer and he's going to person to person to person to give him a track. Okay. He said this, only one life will soon be passed. 
Only what's done for Christ will last. You know that quote. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, and he did, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. The light that shines farthest shines brightest near home. That's convicting. God's real people have always been called fanatics. Are you willing to be a fanatic for Jesus? Here's a woman, Amy Carmichael. When she left Ireland for India in 1895, she would never see home again. She was determined to proclaim the gospel to unreached peoples. Having grown up in a godly Irish Presbyterian family, Carmichael loved Christ from an early age and had begun to teach the Bible to poor girls in Belfast, Ireland. Her introduction to Hudson Taylor highlighted her resolve for soul winning and compelled her to missionary work, first in Japan and then in India. I want you to hear some of her quotes. When I consider the cross of Christ, how can, I, how, how can anything that I do be called sacrifice? And she spent much of her life suffering and in bed. Sometimes, she said, when we read the words of those who have been more than conquerors, we, we feel almost despondent. I, I feel that I'll, I shall never be like that. But they won through step by step, little by little bits of wills, little self-denials, little inward victories. By faithfulness in very little things, they became what they are. No one sees these little hidden steps. They only see the accomplishment. But even so, those small steps were taken. There's no sudden triumph, no sudden spiritual maturity. That's the work of each moment. She said this, joy is not gush. Joy is not mere jolliness. Joy is perfect acquiescence, acceptance, rest in God's will, whatever comes. Oh. She said this, give me the love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay, the hope, no dis- disappointments tire, the passion that'll burn like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. And then this, Satan is so much more earnest than we are. He buys up the opportunity while we're wondering how much it will cost. Then there's this young man. William Borden was born in 1887 in Chicago to the very wealthy Borden family. This is the Borden Dairy Company, known for its mascot, Elsie the Cow. When William was a young man, his mother became a Christian and started taking him to church with her. And he too became a Christian. When he graduated at the age of 16, his parents gave him a gift, a trip around the world. He was not his, it was not on his own as a 16-year-old. He was with Walter Erdman, a minister and a missionary. They visited numerous countries. And along the way, Borden's calling became very clear to him. He would be a missionary. On this trip, he saw firsthand what, what they called in those days heathenism. That's when entire, entire people groups without a gospel witness. And this left such an impression on this young 17-year-old that he knew he wanted to give his life for missions. When he returned to the United States in 1905, he went to Yale University. There he excelled in academics and all sorts of athletics. He was on the boxing team. He was involved in yacht, yachting, and he was engaged in track and field. Between his academic and athletic abilities and his leadership skills, Borden clearly stood out. And with his family connections, Borden could have done anything with his life. But he remained committed to his calling to be a missionary. 
After Yale, he went to Princeton Theological Seminary. When he graduated in 1912, he was ordained and came under the auspices of the China Inland Mission. He spent a few months in New York City working with some missionary agencies to learn firsthand, similar to an internship. He wanted to learn how missions operate. And it was about this time that he became aware of a people group within China, 10 million Muslims without a gospel witness among them. And it's a very difficult people group to reach and a very difficult people to go get to. But Borden was committed to this group as his calling. He decided to go to Cairo in Egypt. He left America in December of 1912 to study Arabic so he could minister to these Muslims in China. On March 21st, he was taken ill with spinal meningitis. 19 days later, he died. April 9th, 1913 was the date. He never even made it to China. We should note two things about his legacy. The first is his will. In his will, he left his entire fortune, well over a million dollars. A lot of money now, it's a lot more money then. I sent my dad an 80th birthday card that my wife found. And it has these things in 1943 that were true. And like... An annual salary was like $1,000 or something crazy. And to buy a house was like $1,500 or something. Anyway, I, I'm not going to remember all that right. And it's hard for me to believe. But that was in 1943. This is in 18, what? 1905, 1912, he died. And he had a million dollars. What did he do with it? He, um, he left his entire fortune to Christian causes. But he also put in his will this specification. This money was to go to missionaries and teachers who are sound in the faith, believing in such fundamentals as the doctrine of the divine inspiration and authority of Scripture, the doctrine of the Trinity, including the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the atonement through the substitutionary death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice this, the other piece of his legacy, the second part was his Bible. And when he died, his Bible's returned to his parents. And when they opened it, they saw in the flyleaf these words written by William Borden, no reserves. I'm not holding anything back. And then these words were written with, uh, with the date when he decided that he would take up his role, not take up his role. So he wrote the, the words, no reserves, in his Bible on the date when he decided that he would not take up the role in the family business, but that he would become a missionary. And at a later date, he wrote these words, no retreat. And then during his illness, after March 21st, and shortly before his death on April 9th, he wrote these words. And could you say this? He didn't even get there. He said, no regrets. All right. Not everybody's a missionary. How about this guy? You know this guy? John Wanamaker. He's a businessman. These were men and stories that were very influential for me and are to this day. Now, John Wanamaker, he became a believer at age 12. And Christianity influenced every part of his life. He, began an, he became an innovative business leader who served God and people. The Philadelphia native entered the merchandising business at an, as an errand boy when he was 14. Two years later, he took a job at a clothing store. And in 1861, the year that he turned 23, he and his brother-in-law, Nathan Brown, opened their own men's clothing store. The following decade in 1876, which is the year the USA celebrated its centennial, John opened a store in a renovated train station in Philadelphia called the Grand Depot. And rather than selling one main category of item, he diversified and he opened and began the first department store. So he was a businessman who earned profit, but while he did it, 
Um, he earned the respect for his customers because he promoted his practices with slogans. And one of them was, courtesy is the only coin you can never have too much of or be too stingy with or, or be stingy with. Another was, when a customer enters my store, forget me, he is king. Honoring the customer led John to some groundbreaking innovations. Prior to his influence, there were no set prices for items in stores. Customers had to haggle over prices. John changed that by establishing a single price for each item written on a price tag. As a Christian, he offered quality goods at fair prices. He also introduced the money-back guarantee. John quickly gained a reputation for truth in advertising. And by the way, as I understand it, his brother-in-law was like, we're going to lose our shirt. You can't put a price tag on it. Nobody does that. And then money-back guarantee, are you kidding? You can't do that and be successful. Tell that to Costco. I did, we, we did run into a, a relative who found out that there is a limit. They took away his privileges for returning items. I laughed very hard after he left. Because I, you can, anyway. So he started this money back guarantee thing. John took care of his employees too. He initiated educational and re recreational opportunities for them. They could also enjoy the concerts and other special events he hosted at his stores. Now this is also important. So here's this businessman doing things to glorify God in his business as a Christian. But then he's also a Presbyterian and he founded Bethany Church overseeing its Sunday school. And under his leadership, it grew into the nation's highest attended Sunday school. The Sunday school movement was big back then, a way of teaching and educating people in the gospel. And so they had 6,000 members during his lifetime. 50 years after its founding, he remained the superintendent. And today the church is known as Bethany Collegiate Presbyterian Church. And then when the revivalist D.L. Moody came to town, he remodeled the hall in which Moody conducted his campaign so that it would be more suitable for preaching the gospel. That's John Wanamaker. All right. I got to keep moving here. But D.L. Moody is another one that I read and really was blessed by. There's a whole, uh, there's a whole story behind him. I have a feeling that... I. I forgot to start the little clock on this thing. So you guys are in trouble, but I'm in good shape. Um, I'm just going to skip ahead. Read about Moody. Ask me about him. Let me give you a few quotes from him. He said, Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody. 40 years learning he was nobody. And then 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. So no one in here better think, well, my decisions are just don't, don't matter to God. I just can do what I want and whatever. No, every one of us is nobody that God can do something special with for the sake of the gospel. The Bible is not given for our information, but for our transformation. He said, give, give your life to God and he can do more with it than you can. He said, joy is love exalted. Peace is love in response. Long-suffering is love enduring. Gentleness is love in society. Goodness is love in action. Faith is love on the battlefield. Meekness is love in tough situations. And temperance is love in training. He said, we're told to let our light shine. And if it does, we won't need to tell anybody else it does. Lighthouses don't fire cannons to call attention to their shining. They just shine. That's good, and it's convicting. <clears throat> the Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. 
There's no greater honor than to be the instrument in God's hands of leading one person out of the kingdom of Satan into the glorious light of heaven. And Moody preached, and I need to find this in my notes because I want to get it right. I don't have the exact number, but he, oh yeah, Moody spoke to audiences of 10 to 20,000 people. This guy was uneducated. He left the farm at age 17 and he was a salesman. And it was his Sunday school teacher who came to the shoe shop and led him to Jesus. And then he presented the plan of salvation by voice or by pen to at least 100 million people. Remarkable. There's a lot more. I got to keep going. This guy. All right. Some of you just like to build things. You like to play in the dirt, guys. Girls, too. You like to um, make things. R.J. Letourneau, you heard of him? He's perhaps the most inspiring Christian inventor, businessman, and entrepreneur the world has ever seen. There's a, a college that he founded that continues to teach this. Robert Gilmore, R.G. Letourneau, went on to become the leading earth-moving machinery manufacturer of his day with plants on four continents, more than 300 patents. I hate paperwork. I can't believe that. To his name and major contributions, he... Um, let's see, 300 patents to his name, and major contributions to road construction and heavy equipment that forever changed the world. Most importantly, his contribution to the advancement of the gospel ranks him among the greatest of Christian businessmen of all time. He was famous for living off of 10% of his income and giving 90% to the spread of the gospel. They're books. You ought to get them and read them. Here's, this, here's another one. Last one. Jim Elliott. This is what Elizabeth Elliot, his wife, said about him. He was a passionate evangelist, devoted husband and father, and martyred Christian missionary. His life and legacy are an exemplary testament to the world of the absolute worthiness of Christ and the costly call of the Christian to follow Jesus. The defining pursuit of his life was intimately know God, tell others about him, and obey his every call. Here are some quotes from him. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. God always gives his best to those who leave the choice with him. That's what we're talking about this morning. God, I pray thee, let these idle sticks of my life, light these idle sticks of my life and let me burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. And then he says, hang on to your, your seats. Our young men are going into the professional fields because they don't feel called to the mission field. We don't need a call. We need a kick in the pants. We must begin thinking in terms of going out and stop our weeping because they won't come in. Who wants to step into an igloo? The tombs themselves are not colder than the churches. May God send us forth. So he was stirred up by the apathy. And as you probably know, he died young on the mission field. And you can read his story. In fact, before I go on, oh, I didn't go on. I just went on online. That's good. I have an article, if you want to look at it, um, that I copied from the original Life magazine that came out. And... Um, Go ye and preach the gospel. Jesus' great commission. So this is a fitting in for this point. And then it says, five do and die. So if you want to take a look at this, you may. 
and uh, or look it up online. So here we go. We're trying to get a clear picture in our head. Jesus, right? He's your example. You're following him. And now you've got these other people who are witnessing to you. He's worth following and giving your life more narrowly to fulfill the Great Commission. As a follower of Jesus, go make followers of Jesus. And so we talked about that with the Great Commission. And now we're going to focus in on the third aspect, the local church. So when you're deciding what God wants you to do, and you need to be deciding what God wants you to do, Lord, what would you have me do? Here's what you do. Glorify me by fulfilling the Great Commission with your local church. Okay, so now we're going to jump into this one. This is the next stage in the pyramid of your life moving toward what God has for you. And here's the passage. This is another picture from that book. This is where Jesus is getting ready to ascend back into heaven, or actually he's ascended into heaven. Can you see him right up there above the N in ascend? Therefore, what's going on when Jesus leaves? This is from Ephesians 4. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. He's up there and we're down here. Bad exchange, right? <laughs> Well, it's his plan, and it's really not us anyway, or any pastor or teacher. It's Christ in us. It's the Holy Spirit through us, and it's God's word that we're commissioned to give. So now, it's not just us, though. It's you, too. You're his body, and you, the church, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head so that the display of Christ becomes worldwide. He said, greater things I'll do when I go to heaven because the spirit's going to come and all of you are going to be my witnesses across the entire globe. We're going to grow up into Christ from whom the whole body joint and held together with every joint supplies. It's being equipped. You're being equipped by what each one of you are contributing to each other so that we build ourselves up in love so that Jesus is seen and heard. That's why the church is more specifically how we fulfill the Great Commission. And why do I have blanks? Aha. I'm Pastor Tim. I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church. And I just want to invite you to come gather together with us. That's a fun little video that's on our website, by the way, if you hadn't seen it before. It's a good thing to show someone. This isn't about buildings and places and playing ball. This is about God's work in the life of people, changing them into the image of Christ so that we can share the gospel. And, and the mission statement of our church is, is fantastic, and it's held the test of time. And so we need to be glorifying God by making followers of Jesus. We do that by worshiping Christ like we are this morning. We do that with the various ministries of the church 
things like preaching, leadership, what we believe, music, missions, and so on. This is on our website. You can see it. This is our local church. This is where God is accomplishing his work. This is where we together behold God's unique greatness, where we learn to treasure him above everything else, and then where we proclaim that to others. We support and we encourage um, international missions like some we've read about, the ones that we know here today. We take our time and we come and participate. We make a big deal of Sundays, this first day of the week, to equip and strengthen us. We have times and focus and emphasis on different Sundays of the month in order to accomplish God's work in the world. We have preaching and means to get back to it and listen to it again and share it with others so that you can be equipped. By God's grace, we have ministry to children where they learn the gospel and share it in song and where they're part of the building up and the equipping. We have pastors who go visit kids in college, young people, excuse me, young adults in college. We have evangelism training. That's tonight, by the way. Um, we have pastor who's teaching other young men and not so young men the work of the ministry and what it would be like to be in the ministry and, and on all of us are to some degree. But it's a really special place here where we can learn about the gospel ministry. We have deacon meetings or leadership meetings where different men are taking burdens and praying and making the church work. Forgive me, I'll go quick. I knew I didn't get permission. Um, this is in a small group Bible study. We meet in homes. We have meals together in our homes. We celebrate together and play games together as a church family. We grow up together. Look at this and then look at that. Oops, it's over here. I'm looking at it. Now you are. So it's kind of fun. You grow up together if you stay place for very long. And then God has given you a really tall pastor. And do I say short or just average? I think we're average. I think we probably have an easier time finding pants and shirts than he does. So we're okay. But what are we here for? It wasn't our idea. He's in heaven. God's in Jesus is in heaven. <laughs> pastor John gets close. <laughs> we shouldn't have let him stand on that box. Why did we do that? So, God has given us the local church where we're equipped. So when you're deciding what God wants you to do, glorify God. Bye. Oh boy. How come I didn't have it there? There. By fulfilling the Great Commission with the local church. Now here's the last one. I know it's long, but this is part of your discipleship connect. It's based on what? That's all great in theory, but it's you that God is after. It's you that Jesus has saved. It's you that have to be active in this work. And you are his workmanship. God saved you. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of your work so that you can't boast. What you are are God's workmanship. You've been created in Christ Jesus for an end, to do something, for good works. And God prepared them beforehand for you to do. 
And then this is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That needs to be our prayer. And when we make a decision in life, that needs to be what we're thinking about. I've been saved and my life is not my own. I'm going to glorify God with my body by fulfilling the great commission with the local church. I'm going to do that. God wants to glorify himself by showing and telling the world the good news of Jesus and teaching them what Jesus commanded through you, the local church. And it's because it's made up of people like you created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that will glorify your father in heaven. Okay, now I'm going to be a little bit like Paul and be embarrassing and maybe inappropriate in one sense in this boasting a little bit, but not that much. Ha, you can decide. Okay, in the sense that I'm not preaching to you something that I'm not living. It's not perfect. And I know I'm a pastor, okay, but I have to do two things. I get to be a pastor and a businessman, and it's not necessarily a privilege, but it is what God's called me to do. So no excuses, right? I showed you all these other, I showed you wives, I showed you moms, I showed you business people, I showed you missionaries, I showed you pastors. Well, yeah, the three of us. So by God's grace, early on, we met Pastor Tim, and it was the church mission statement that that got me. We decided, and look on the prayer card, since I'm using up Discipleship Connect time. No, I won't. All right, some, there's a hidden picture in this that I want to show some of you sometime if you're curious. The True Family with Grace Bible Church in Menifee, California, we're seeking to glorify God by making faithful followers of Jesus Christ, that's the Great Commission, in Southern California through indigenous church planting. Okay, this hasn't changed. And you have to make plans like you do with all things in life. So if you're deciding what you're going to do, what God wants you to do, you have to plan. And so by God's grace and with the help of Pastor Tim and others, our plan was to take the priority of church planting in this place of Southern California with this people, Grace Bible Church, to glorify God. The plan was based upon the great commission given by Jesus. These slides go back 16 years. We used them in in missions presentations. 15 years? And it's the Great Commission is to make disciples for the glory of God. And by the way, I've shown these same slides in I don't know how many business meetings so that people can understand what motivates us. And it based on, like I told you, the foundations, the, the mission of our church. This is something that keeps being worked out. In 2017, went to Hawaii for our 20th anniversary, and I took a little notebook and I rewrote for myself what my purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him by being a faithful follower of Christ who seeks to know God's unique greatness, value him above everything else, and grow into Christ's likeness and then live to make him known to others. And then I wrote down these priorities, to love and follow Jesus, to love and lead my wife and children, to love and lead Alicia, Brandon, Jonathan, and Brianna. I I want to edify and equip Grace Bible Church through assisting shepherding and DDL business development and then evangelize the lost. I carry that in my Bible bag. And then at work, Ben and I wrote that money is a means. The end is the glory of God. Life is short, so we want to live for what will last forever. We're committed to not wasting our lives by doing all we can to do God's will. And then we're going to take whatever money God gives us and invest it in eternity, which means you have to invest it in people because they're the only thing that lasts forever. And then at work, we write a mission statement like this. DDL exists to glorify God by providing a restoration experience our doctors can trust and their patients will promote. 
We seek to do that by investing in our team and producing high-quality products with genuine customer care, one client and case at a time. And our motivation, and this is Ben and me, is to show, and Mike is right in here with us and others, but it's to show the love of Christ and to use our resources to encourage and equip great commission efforts with churches, ministries, individuals, and businesses. And God's enabling us to do that. This summer, on our wall, Alicia put together a mission reminder. So we have pictures of California. I met other people who are moving out of California. Okay, don't you dare move out of California unless you can answer the question, what does God want me to do? Forgive me, I'm being a little blunt and personal. But seriously, if you can say, I believe God will allow me to better um, fulfill the Great Commission with, my, with the local church, you might have to switch churches, I suppose. Uh, yeah, if you're going to go to another state. With the local church, based on who God has made me to be, then by God's blessing, go. But we're here on purpose because we think this is the best way for us to fulfill the Great Commission. But we need reminders because it's not easy. Nothing's easy in that sense. But it's simple. The decision has been made. And so we remind ourselves. And then we put pictures of some of the people that we work with, both in the business and in the church. We don't dress up like that. That's the first time we've dressed up like that in however many years. But the point was, it was a picture on the wall as a great reminder of our team, both at work and church, trying to accomplish the Great Commission with the local church based on who God has made us to be. And it's all for the glory of God. So I'm advancing it on my computer, not on your screen. All right, here it is. How to decide what God wants you to do prayerfully plan with wise counsel how you can best glorify God by obeying the Great Commission with your local church based on who God has made you to be. I've said it a lot. I want you to be able to picture now a follower of Jesus called to glorify him, to go make followers of Jesus and be equipped by the local church. I want you to be able to consider what your end is that your end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So when you ask the question, what should I do? Where should I live? Who should I marry? You can answer it by saying, I want to glorify God by obeying the Great Commission with the local church based on who God has made me to be. And this is a lifelong process. You've got to keep learning all through life. What is it to glorify God? How do I fulfill the Great Commission? What does that look like? What about the local church? And what are my unique identity and purpose? Um, what does God put in your heart, in your hands? Look at, look at your life. How is God making you? And it isn't just a one time he made you. Yes, he did. But it's out. You're, you're learning throughout life who you are and what God has made you to do. Take what he's put in your hands and use it for his glory. Whether with, with your spiritual gifts, exercise them. With your vocational abilities, use them to provide. With your interests, both in occupation and recreation, use them for God's purposes. You know, some of you are way down the road in life. You're well-established. You have a plan. You have a job. You have a life calling. Some of you are just starting to make life decisions and directions. Some of our young people. Either way, you should be asking, what does God want me to do? And use this to help guide your decisions. And it is the way of the cross. Remember we read about Jesus taking up your cross and following me? And we saw him on the cross in that depiction by the artist. But you find joy in God by choosing to deny yourself and do what you know will please the Lord. That is the path of joy. This way of decision will also help you know what not to do in life. 
you don't do those things that will not help you glorify God by fulfilling the Great Commission with the local church based on who God has made you to be. So what about fun? What about hobbies, desires? What about an adventure? Well, God gives us richly all things to enjoy so long as they help us glorify God by obeying the Great Commission with our local church based on who God is making us to be. So pray, plan, and enjoy the life God has given you to steward. It's not your life. You are a steward of it. And God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, as John Piper reminds us often. So this is the last slide. Will you, will you right now decide, I am going to, by the grace of God, day-to-day plan prayerfully I'm going to get good counsel from the tall ones and the short ones and other Christians. How can I, put your name in there, Lord, how can I glorify you? Not just generally, but very specifically by obeying the commission that you gave, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the Savior, the King, the head of the church, my shepherd, my friend. And then how... Can I do that with the local church? Because that's where you're working. That's how you're working. And then I'm going to do it based on who you've made me to be. So Lord, teach me. Help me to develop my gifts, my skills, my interests in a way that will glorify you. And if you do that, I think you can end life very well. And you will live life very well. And you'll never regret it. No retreat. No regrets. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your patience. And whether it's the length of this sermon or the pictures and stories we heard or whatever it happens to be, may you burn this passion into our hearts and this commitment as we make decisions so that you would be glorified and we would experience the good and the joy that you intend for your children. It is a good and a joy through tears, through pain, through suffering, but but there is a lasting hope and joy and peace that comes now and extends on into eternity. And there is no other way of deciding and living that brings such. The end of the transgressor is hard and sin is an evil master and Satan comes to steal, to kill and to destroy. So we choose this morning not to give our lives to ourselves or to him or to the world. We have decided to follow Jesus and we're not going to turn back because he is worthy to receive the reward of his suffering. And he's the only one who can bring us into the presence of the eternal holy God and present us faultless with joy. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.